soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. And welcome to another special episode of the Wellness for Vets podcast. Today we have with us author and historian Patrick O'Donnell. Uh, Pat is, well, as I said, he's an author and historian. Uh, I'll let him differentiate between the two, but I want to tell you how I met Pat. And I'm going to give, Pat has some very serious credentials when it comes to being a military historian, from being in the OSS Society to actually doing correspondence from the battlefield, gun in hand. Um, I met Pat in the streets of Fallujah, Iraq in 2004. Uh, he was looking for, you know, some frontline. He wanted to get some eyewitness stuff up front, and uh, he, he got attached to my squad and ended up rolling with us up into the – well, he, he, he was in the unit longer than me. I eventually got hurt. Uh, I was medevaced out of Iraq and back home, and Pat stayed with the unit to, uh, you know, finish taking notes and, and eventually releasing the book. We were one shoulder to shoulder with the Marines who took Fallujah. Uh, and it's a book about Lima Company, more specifically First Platoon, um, in the battle for Fallujah, the second battle where we actually went in and secured the city. So that's how I met Pat. Um, Pat is also, you know, he's an he's a expert in World War II. And today being the anniversary of D-Day, we are going to talk about D-Day. Um, now, normally... Significant events come every five years, you know, a, a 70th anniversary, 75th anniversary, 80th, whatever the case may be. This being the first real year of the podcast, um, hey, we're going to start now in 76, the 76th anniversary of D-Day. Um, so without further ado, I want to introduce Pat. And Pat, why don't you uh, just go ahead and, and if there's anything you want to add about yourself before we get into the meat and potatoes. Oh, no, no, that's all right. Let's just jump right into it. 
Um, I've been a full-time author and historian for 21 years, but I've been recording the stories of American veterans for over 30 years, beginning right after I got out of college in 1992. I started as a volunteer interviewing World War II veterans. I've interviewed well over three or 4,000 veterans, beginning with veterans in World War I all the way through World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and as you know, in Fallujah, uh, many Iraq veterans and then some veterans from Afghanistan as well. Um, my, my, my goal at the beginning was to share and preserve the stories of American veterans and their oral histories. That was the, the beginning of this journey for me. And it started with uh, interviewing veterans from the 82nd Airborne Division and interviewing men from that unit at Normandy. Uh, some of the first interviews that I ever conducted with the 82nd were men that were part of the Pathfinders. These were the guys that went in to, to, to light the way to D-Day. And um, from there, it went to the 101st. And I specialized, my specialty is in elite units, especially of America's elite units, beginning with the Revolutionary War, the light infantry specifically. Uh, I wrote a book called Washington's Immortals, which covers their story. It's a band of brothers on the American Revolution. And then going up through time, uh, through America's conflicts, uh, finished a book on World War One. But the, the part of my story is I, I began interviewing these World War II veterans when nobody else was really doing it. And uh, many of the people that I interviewed had never told their story to anyone. And I wrote a book um, at their request. Um, I, uh, I amassed all these oral histories and I started a website called thedropzone.org, which was the first virtual oral history site for World War II veterans. And I used email to, to gather their stories and created a virtual community around those veterans, which were the Airborne, the 82nd, the 101st, and the independent units that most people don't even know about, uh, the 509, 551, 517. These are kind of detached units that had their own lineage and an amazing story. And they were all kind of families that had, nobody had really ever talked to um, until I, in many cases, I interviewed these guys and uh, started to tell their story and put it in online on this dropzone.org. And I created a virtual museum of these men. And instead of artifacts, their oral histories were the story. The story is always going to been the story. And um, these men asked, said to me, well, why don't you write a book? And I initially was unsure if that was something that I could even accomplish. And um, in 1999, I received my first book contract with Simon Schuster. I was the youngest historian in the country with a national press. I was 29 years old. And um, I put together a book called Beyond Valor, which is an oral history of the Rangers and Airborne. It was a national bestseller. So a ton of these books. It went through probably about 20 or 30 reprints. And it's an oral history of, of the Rangers and Airborne. It's an operational history, too. Kind of like a, a walls in a castle. Um, each stone in that wall is an oral history in this book. It's laid out chronologically. It begins with the Dieppe raid, 
and it follows 50 American Rangers that were part of the Diep raid and their stories, and then it goes through North Africa, where the 509 led the first parachute combat jump into North Africa. And I had known these men very well and told their story through their own words, um, what it was like to be in the first combat jump in North Africa and working through the entire war, getting up to D-Day, where you know some of the most compelling stories in this book are in the invasion. It's the night drop into D-Day where the 82nd and the 101st drops. First, the 82nd around St. Mary Glees, 101st in and around St. Mary Glees and St. Mary Colm de Mont. They also, the 101st has an objective of taking the, uh, the causeways that are behind Utah Beach. This is one of the reasons why Utah is more is less bloody than Omaha Beach, for instance, is because there's an air, airborne drop of two divisions behind the beachhead, which seal it off for the most part and allow the 4th Division and other units to come in, in uh, you know, they're able to land, unlike Omaha Beach, which is very hot. And um, it's, 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 it's a very tough situation. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, this book is about the Rangers and the Airborne. But, you know, let me just say that this is not a, a technical history of, of these units. This is about what I call the hidden war. It's about the feelings and emotions that many of these men had bottled up. And many of these guys didn't know it at the time, but they had PTSD and a lot of other issues. Um, and they never told their stories to anyone. And I was the first in many cases. And uh, it was very cathartic for many of these veterans if I to, may, to reveal uh, that war. I would tell the, the listeners, you know, as you read any of Pat's works, as he keeps referring to, it's an oral history, with, with the exception of maybe Washington's Immortals, which is a fascinating book. Um, Pat does all his stuff talking to the people. So when you read the books, it, it's not, like he said, it's not just a, a tactical analysis or something like that. These are the stories of guys in Korea, guys from World War II, guys in the more recent campaigns in Iraq. So you really get a the emotional aspect of it. And all you have to do is read any of the reviews to see how people respond to the stories um, from the guys. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a really, they're special books. I mean, not, not because of what I've done or contributed. It's the stories inside the books and, and where people have opened up um, in many cases and never told their stories. And beginning with Beyond Valor, I've always had a reunion of the people in the book. In this, this book, we had a reunion at a Barnes & Noble in Springfield, Virginia. We had about four or 500 people show up. And I had hundreds of, well, over 100 World War II veterans come to that, that reunion. And they told their stories live. It was really, it was an amazing um, event. It was my first book signing. And, you know, C-SPAN captured it. It was just an amazing event because we also had, you know, going back to D-Day, we had one of the Pathfinders that was on that original mission. And he had, he received a bronze star, but um, it was written up, but he had never actually physically received it until that day. Wow. When his battalion commander who was about 89 years old. Colonel Luis Mendez, who's just an absolute airborne legend, 
those are the people that I hung out with that were my friends. I mean, the legends of D-Day. I mean, it, I just, it can't even, it's hard to convey that to people. They were there and they were, they awarded him the, you know, his bronze star that day. It was just an amazing experience. So I, I, I've, you know, Pat and I have been friends for over a decade now, almost two decades. And, uh, you know, we follow each other on social media. So I get to see what he's doing. And like, he's, if, if you haven't really quite got the picture, I mean, he has spent years rubbing elbows with, you know, military legends. They wouldn't call themselves legends, but my generation would. You know, he's rubbing elbows with the greatest generation, rubbing elbows with OSS operatives, you know, predecessor to the CIA. So, I mean, Pat's in there deep with the with the hardcore guys. And, and uh, you know, some of the books that I would like to highlight, Pat mentioned Beyond Valor, which was about the Rangers. Um, and, and Doll Company in Normandy. Um, two of my personal favorites, the Brenner Assignment uh, is about uh, a couple of OSS guys who had to go, uh, I believe it was the, the Italian Alps, and they had to secure a pass to, uh, they secure it or they had to shut it down. It was one or the other, but it was a, well, it was a strategic the book, terrain. The book we're talking about is called The Brenner Assignment, and The Brenner Assignment is really, I think one of the greatest World War II stories that prior to this book was not told. It, it's, it's a, uh, it's a story about choking off the main supply artery of the third Reich into Italy, the Brenner pass. And through that pass flowed the supplies and men and material from the third Reich into Italy to supply the, the German armies in Italy. Problem was during World War II, it could never the Allies could never sever that pass. They they tried to bomb it, but it was too heavily defended. Uh, rail and, and and traffic by truck got through. So the story begins in 1943, where um, a guy that's really quite extraordinary. He dropped out of Harvard and Yale, but he was also kind of a uh, a man that was trying to find himself. He uh, was a wealthy guy. 1938, he, he, he uh, went to northern Italy on a, a ski trip for six months, and he climbed the, the northern uh, Alps in Italy, the Dolomite Mountains, and skied that area, so he knew it like the back of his hand. And in 1943, he um, went into the U.S. Army as a combat engineer and wrote a letter on his way home on a, on a long train ride to the OSS proposing a one-man mission that if he was sent behind the lines with explosives, he could sever the smaller passes that fed the Brenner Pass and thereby like degrade the military traffic that was going through that pass. And um, he got his wish. He was sent in on a, on a one-man mission or a small team to go in by parachute and uh, – and meet up with the partisans behind the lines. And this is his story. And it's an extraordinary one. It's it's a story where he recorded his his journey on cigarette paper and then buried it in a series of wine bottles on the side of his safe house. And I uncovered um, his his wartime diary and um, the uh, the story of a a second team that was sent in to bring him the radio that had, um, he did not have a radio in his initial drop. And um, it's an amazing story. It's a story of, of kind of uh, 
coming to age of finding himself. This is a guy that prior to the war, he had a number of jobs after dropping out of Harvard and Yale. He was a circus shill in a, in a carnival where he'd go in with the fat man and, and go a few rounds and literally get knocked out. He was a wildcatter, oil rigger, um, just moved around the country. And he's just really quite interesting. He goes in to Northern Italy by parachute and then finds himself this Anglican American, this kind of waspy guy that's wealthy in with Italian partisans who are communists. He's a total fish out of water trying to survive. But at the same time, the SS is hunting him like a dog. And they're very good at counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. There's a guy in the book who's the main character on the other side. His name is August Schiffer. And Schiffer is the um, consummate SS officer that um, he's right here in the book. Schiffer is, is a brilliant guy that knows exactly how to work every possible angle. He captures people, tortures them, gets prop the information that he needs for a tiny thread, and then rolls up people. And Steve was behind the lines, uh, you know, running from August Schiffer's bands of SS troops for months. And what's amazing about this story is there's also a love story involved. Uh, one of the partisan chieftains, if you will, is a mayor of a small town uh, within in the Northern Alps. And she is kind of interesting. She's a uh, former countess that is appointed as a, a Nazi mayor. But she's also a double agent. She is working for French intelligence. And this is all a completely true story. Stephen Hall links up with her um, after she presents to him a copy of a book called The Scarlet Pimpernel. And they meet in the dead of night in her house. And uh, she's very seductive and beautiful. And he, he kind of pulls a cool move. He, does, he blows her off which just throws her completely out of off kilter because she's able to seduce everybody. But the two of them um, fall in love. Um, within this tension is Stephen Hall's uh, lack of radio. And he's not able to communicate with bass directly, so he has to use another team's radio behind the lines. Those of you that know, don't know, but a radio for an agent behind the lines is their lifeline. It's a way to transmit information. It's a way to also get new supplies. It's a way to stay in touch with their base. So they sent in a man that was uh, really the, the main character of this book other, alongside Stephen Hall, a guy by the name of Howard Chapel. Chapel is quite amazing. He's the, the Schwarzenegger of his day. I mean, he's about five, six foot three, pure muscle, linebacker for Case Western Reserve in Ohio. But prior to the war, he was a jump master down at Fort Benning. He ran the towers down there. And he, he was a daredevil, absolutely fearless, and uh, ran something called the German Operational Group, which is another book that I wrote, which is called The Real and Glorious Bastard. It's the story behind The Real and Glorious Bastard. It's called They Dared Return. But that was Chapel's team, and they send in Howard Chapel. And Chapel is a, a movie character. He, um, if you ever saw the movie Gangster Squad, he's the true story behind the OSS operative that took out Mickey Cohen. There's one scene in there where they, they bring him into a room 
He said, yeah, you, you, you received the silver star behind the lines with the OSS. That's Howard Chappell. Chappell uh, was absolutely fearless. He killed several man with, men with his bare hands. This was the real deal. I mean, uh, I, I, the, the people that I interviewed in my books were all real deals. Nobody ever wanted to interview with me. If somebody did want to interview with me, I never talked to them. Every one of these people were referred to me by their friends. In the case of Howard Chappell, it took years to interview Howard because Howard would always, would always, uh, would always come up with a line. He's like, Pat, you, you just got to come out here one of these days. And he lived on, it's, it's uh, in California at Pismo Beach. And he would never talk to anybody because, I mean, a lot of it had to do with his, his involvement after the war with taking out the mafia. He was a very guarded man and he was afraid. I mean, he, he had great trade craft. He didn't trust anybody, basically. And I, um, I befriended his case officer, his, his operations officer, who's, his nickname was The Brain. And I would go, uh, we'd go on Sundays into the basement of The Brain's house, which is in Bethesda. And The, the Brain had literally tens of thousands of declassified documents that he had obtained from the National Archives and reconstructed his, the men that he sent behind the lines, including Howard. Wow. And we'd sit there and, you know, have spaghetti and pasta and go behind the lines together. But eventually he talked to, to Howard and it was combined with another thing. I went to California and was out there, called up Howard and he, uh, he gave me the normal, the spiel of, Mel, you got to come out here. And I said to him, well, Howard, I'm here. <laughs> and I had the brain column at the same time. And the next thing you know, I, I was able to get him to, 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 to let me talk to him the next day. And he said to me, um, you know, meet me at the, the gas station at Spyglass Hill Road at Pismo Beach at 12 noon. I was there at 1155. And I'll never forget at like 1201. This Lincoln shows up, this giant town car. Howard's got a pair of shades on, and he just looks at me in the window, and he's like, follow me. And we drove back to his house, and he immediately started to sort of intimidate me. He pulled out his Air, uh, Fairburn Sykes fighting knife. These OSS guys, most of them were, were given an OSS, uh, an OSS dagger that they had behind the lines. He was using it to open his, his mail. <laughs> and he uh, opened his mail and he had kind of these long fingernails that were like Count Chocula and he was just sharpening his nails in front of me he's like Pat do you need to use the bathroom or anything I'm like I'm fine Howard so then we, we went behind the lines in his war and I said to him well, do you remember the bushy bridge where you, you took out that you tried to take out that bridge pretty amazing this bridge that was near the Brenner Pass was bombed relentlessly by the Allies and nothing could take it out so Howard tried to take it out single-handedly using a, a, a deactivated bomb a 500 pound bomb that was a dud that fell near the bridge he took out the guards on the bridge with a knife um, in, a, in a silence pistol and I'll never forget he's like 
I, I can't recall if I used a silencer or a fire log to kill that guy. And, and, and I'm like, well, I think it was a silenced pistol and a knife. And then he took me back to that bridge and he literally took out those guards with his team of partisans and rolled the bomb across it and planted it there. And it, 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 the bomb detonated, but didn't do enough damage to take out the bridge. But it's, just, it's kind of an example of this guy who had been captured two times behind the lines. One time actually killed his, his captor with, a, with hand-to-hand combat, snapped his neck. I mean, this guy's, when I tell you he's pretty amazing, he's pretty amazing. And then you, I had about 5,000 reports um, and documents from that mission maybe 10,000 that, that verified everything the tower was telling me, including from a British operative that was behind the lines with him that, you know, after that mission. Nice. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I, like I said, it was one of my favorites, Pat, uh, you had sent it to me one time. I forget where I was. I think I was overseas. I was probably when I was stationed in Germany. You had sent me that, uh, an electric copy and, and I read it on one of my, Plane rides back to the states, and I, I, of course, knowing knowing the kind of wanky stuff I'm into, it was one of my my favorites. You know, <laughs> living living a fantasy behind enemy lines. Um, but so now being around all these guys, all these old timers, um, and and writing the books, you know, I I told Pat when I reached out to him for this interview, I said, you know, I know you're normally pretty busy this time of the year with D-Day coming up because he gets invited to, to do a lot of speeches or he, you know, he's hosting his own thing. Um, but this year with the COVID, a lot of the stuff has been shut down and it's given everybody a lot of free time and, and time to figure out other ways to do stuff. So what I'd like to talk about now, Pat, is just let's talk about the D-Day invasion, right? And if I could set it up real quick, I mean, the 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 story everybody pretty much knows. I mean, Eisenhower ran one of today one of the most uh, successful military deception operations with his fake army uh, made out of cardboard and garbage and balloons and whatever else. Um, you know, the invasion. Everybody stands up, they stand down. They stand up, they stand down. You know, because it really depended on the weather and tides and things like that. Then they get the green light. The Band of Brothers, they go do their thing behind enemy lines to open up the path like you had mentioned earlier. And then we get the the boats coming across the channel. Um, And, you know, we I think if I remember correctly, a lot of this World War Two nostalgia was really kicked off when Tom Hanks uh, and and Spielberg made the Saving Private Ryan. It really reignited that. that historical, I don't, I don't, I don't even know if you could say it's a love of history, but just people were intrigued and they wanted more. And, and it was all built around D-Day. And I remember when I decided to join the military, you know, it was around the 50th anniversary of D-Day. And I remember watching Peter Jennings on ABC news doing the D-Day special. Um, and, and like that battle is so significant in world history. There's never been anything like it. Now as a Marine, you know, we, our fight was in the Pacific. I mean, there were some Marines in the ETO though. They were with the OSS. Yeah, I, mean, I forget I, those guys like Peter Ortiz. Oh yeah. That, that, that's a whole other <laughs> story. But I mean, if you look at the Marine Corps Memorial in, in, in Arlington, um, I mean, that's a symbol of America. You see it in Memorial Day. You see it at the 4th of July. You see it at Veterans Day. But not too many people can tell you that February 23rd 
is a significant date, you know, in regards to the Battle of Iwo Jima. But everybody knows June 6th is D-Day. There's TV specials about it, radio shows about it, all kind of memorials. So what is it about the invasion of France that, that is such a big deal? It's, the, it's, a, it's a key inflection point that changes the course of World War II. It literally breaks the back of the German army. That's the significance of D-Day. That's why it's important. It's the second front that truly opens up. We had the Italian front, but this is the D-Day front. And here the German army is, is, is part of it's crushed, ultimately after months in the hedgerows of Normandy. And, um, you know, my book is, I've written two books on D-Day that really capture that essence. First one is, is Beyond Valor with these Ranger and Airborne veterans. Then I drilled down deeper into um, Dog Company, which is on the boys of Pointe Hoc. This is the, the famous Reagan speech. I think one of his most famous speech, uh, the boys of Pointe Hoc, that scale the cliffs at, at, at Pointe Hoc, the 90-foot cliffs, and take out the big guns there. And it, it's an incredibly significant mission on a number of ways. Not only were the gun, did the guns have to be taken out, but there's also a, an indirect effect that most people don't really realize. There were two Ranger battalions that were assigned to take out these, these large guns in that cliff, the, the second Ranger battalion and the fifth Ranger battalion. And a, a number of very interesting and mysterious circumstances take place that morning. The, um, there's a young naval officer with the British Navy that's that's transporting the bulk of the, the 5th Ranger Battalion and several companies of the 2nd to their objective at Point de Hoc. And initially, there's there's three companies of Rangers that are assigned to take that, that, that cliff, um, including Dog Company. And these guys have to scale, picture this, a 90-foot cliff under direct machine gun fire and German soldiers throwing potato mashers down. They even had IEDs that ring, ring the side of the cliff. There were suspended artillery shells that they detonated. So these guys had to climb these wet ropes under this tremendous fire. And that morning, the, um, they were able to scale to the top and a message went out to bring in the 5th Ranger Battalion to to finish the job, basically, to, to support them. The radio message didn't work. The young lieutenant that was in charge of that craft also put them off course by 45 minutes. So a series of events took place that literally changed the course of history. And the 5th Ranger Battalion, along with um, A and B Company of the 2nd Ranger Battalion, along with C Company, which had their own objective, which is a place called Pointe de la Poisse, the extreme left of uh, Omaha Beach were diverted uh, to Omaha Beach and they were at exactly the right time and place in history to make a huge difference. The 5th Rangers landed intact as a battalion um, on Omaha Beach. They landed it in a sector next to a place called Omaha Green. And this is the scene from Saving Private Ryan. Omaha Green, uh, Dog Green, is a, um, 
uh, a charnel house. It was a situation where there were many, many men that were being slain by MG-42 machine guns. They were being hit by artil German artillery shells. The landing crafts were literally being blown apart. And there was a real question whether or not the beachhead was going to be able to be successful. There were, there were questions. They were, thought, they were talking about reembarking and going back to the ships, which would have changed the course of history. But the 5th Ranger Battalion, which had been diverted from Point de Hoc, now goes in at Omaha Beach. It's quite interesting. The uh, battalion commander, Max Schneider, who's one of the few veterans in the Ranger, the 5th Ranger Battalion, who was with Darby's Rangers in North Africa. And um, Max Schneider is a combat veteran that has a steel plate in his head because of uh, combat wounds in North Africa suffers from PTSD and literally asks to go home in May before the invasion. He's, he's really kind of uh, at the point at the end of his rope and Eisenhower himself intercedes and said, no, we need an experienced commander with the fifth. And he orders him to stay for the invasion. And at the, um, at this critical juncture in history, Max Schneider and his troops are supposed to go in and dog green, which is a massacre. People are being massacres, massacred by the German machine guns and the artillery. And he negotiates with the British to land in dog white a little bit over to the left and literally changes the course of history. The, the fifth lands intact and establishes the breakout, the primary breakout from Omaha Beach and is mainly responsible for saving the beachhead. And uh, it's here on the beach that um, the famous words are uttered, rangers lead the way, and they, they charge forth. They set Bangalore torpedoes, which you and I are familiar with from Fallujah, <laughs> to blow the wire on Omaha Beach and escape through a, um, a cut there, and uh, it's something called the virable draw, and they, they're able to make their way out of the beachhead and change the course of history. It's, it's, I don't think you can never really get tired of the story. I mean, you know, and then of course with how, how well they make movies these days and then they're pretty accurate. But I mean, like when you consider guys who have already made it to the beach, right? I mean, you had mentioned there was talk about going back to the ship, but that could have been <laughs> trying to get off of the beach and go back to the boat could have been as bad as trying to go forward. Cause now you're out in the open, but either way you got to move forward. Right. And then, that's where you see different leadership, whether it's a private, an NCO, or a commission officer. You know, like somebody's got to get those guys together. And then, like, you know, if if you're, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to speak to any Germans, but I like I can imagine like looking out and it's like we're throwing everything at these guys, and they just keep coming. Not only do they keep coming, but they, I mean, General Ron. You know, you, you were part of it the other yesterday where we hosted this thing called the History Happy Hour on Zoom, which we try to do like every other Monday. But General Ron, who's the last surviving Ranger officer that's alive, was on our show. And he's 98 years old. He was there when they said Rangers lead the way with the fifth. But he made an interesting observation after a question. He said, you know, what's the difference between American and German troops? He said the German troops are superbly trained. They were excellent. However, they weren't able to improvise. They weren't able to, to change it up with a situation that presented itself and improvise. And that's where American troops were so good and able to improvise at that NCO level or individual 
level where a, a single American could change the course of history. And that's happened over and over. And that's really what many of my books are about. It's where a single American or a single person can change the course of their history by their actions. Amazing. Now, have, have you uh, been to Normandy? Oh, yeah, many times. Okay. I've, uh, my, uh, I, I've been there half a dozen or more times, more than half a dozen times. And uh, my, I was there last year with the OSS Society representing them. I'm a board member for the OSS Society. And we went to Normandy and, uh, you know, that was a very powerful experience to, 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 to walk in the footsteps of these men. But also, you know, you and I had this connection with, with Colonel Buell with 3-1. And um, I'd been to Normandy many times before that by myself, but he asked me to first to, to give, the, to give uh, the 5th Marines a tour of, of Normandy, which I had, I had done several times. And, uh, and later with the, um, the Wounded Warrior Regiment, which where he was the CEO. And that, you know, all the books I've ever written kind of found me. And that's where this book, The Unknowns, found me. Because The Unknowns is about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. But it's also about the eight men that were body bearers. And the, the first man that was in that book was Ernest A. Jansen. It was a Marine with one five that hit, took 142. And he was the first Medal of Honor recipient with the American Expeditionary Force. And it was through that tour that I found that story, or that story found me, I should say. Nice. And I wanted to know who those other men were, those other eight guys that took back the remains of the unknown soldier. And uh, I followed their story. It's a combat history of the NCOs, most most decorated NCOs in in uh, in the in World War One, nice. as they bring back the NO. Um, last night, the previous night, I was on um, as a part of of Pat's group, the History Happy Hour. There was a gentleman on there who was part of the old guard that, that guards the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And amongst a group of us, we were talking about how important it is to remember. You know our history, especially as time goes on, because now there's not any World War One members left, and the World War Two are, are far and few between. I wouldn't be surprised if they're in the single digits, but I don't have any statistics. Um, and and then the next one that's going to come up is Korea. But when we look back at at history, I mean, um, like you really don't hear anything about World War One. It was called the Great War. It was the war to end all wars, and. And, uh, what? Not even twenty years later, there was another world war. But um, Pat, having been to Normandy, like it, it's a really big deal on June sixth. There, there's always a, a mass military formation, dignitaries, presidents, and things are there. Um, what 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 is it like for the French people when? I don't know if it gets it gets talked about the other three hundred sixty four days of the year, but that one day when everybody comes together to remember what happened uh, in Normandy. Well, what's that like? Well, it's a very special place. And let me, let me just sort of backtrack a little bit. What's interesting is on June 6, 1918, um, that was the Marine Corps' um, day that saved Paris. It's where they went on the attack at a place called Belle Wood, which is hallowed ground for all Marines. Yes, it is. And it's here that the Marine Corps literally saved Paris 
It's an extraordinary story where the, the Marine Corps is part of the second division, which is they, they were part of the fourth brigade, the fifth and sixth Marine Corps regiments are put in the, in the line where the entire German are like, you know, several corps of the German army are pouring through the poorest French army and they're not holding at all. So they rush the second division along with the Marines to fill that gap at Bella Wood. And they set up a skirmish line um, and they stopped the German army. It's an extraordinary story. Um, and it's there that, you know, French people are just unbelievable. They welcome Americans and it's the same with Normandy. You go to Normandy and people love Americans and they love the, the contribution of Americans. And it's ex extremely, um, it's, it's, a, it's an electric feeling that you can't really describe. You go there, especially if you go there with veterans from World War II and you walk that, that area, it's, it's extraordinary. And we got, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to plug my show, but it's the History Happy Hour. We're going to go back to France on June 5th at 6.30 and, and we're going to have a live feed from Normandy. First at Pegasus Bridge where the Brits landed with their gliders to take the bridge crucial bridge that had to had to be held that had to be taken to, to avoid you know basically have the ss coming down into the beachhead the british beachhead and then we're going to go to st mary glees and st mary Colne de mont where the 101st landed and we'll have a hundred a hundred year almost a hundred year old veteran that's going to tell us what he did that night and i mean it's just it's a special place and then we'll we'll be in france too and the, some of our guides are are uh well, they're English and French, so we got an amazing combination. It's awesome. I'm I'm going to be there. I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. <clears throat> um, I guess with that being said, Pat, like this this year, the 76th anniversary of the landing at Normandy. What what would you like people to take away from that? What do you think people should think about? Remember, you know, what have you? What what should this day mean to everybody else? You know, 76 years later. I think every generation is a great generation. And our, our World War II generation is, is unfortunately passing before our eyes. But, you know, we had that World War I generation that nobody even thinks about. And they were a great generation, too. These are guys that came from all over America. They were greeted by their, their grandfathers and their uncles who fought in the Civil War in both the, in both the North and the South. And they came together quickly. And they formed what's now the modern Marine Corps at Bella Wood. They formed the modern army. Uh, and then it's the same thing with um, the World War II generation, which is also a great generation. But we also have, you know, what I saw is a great generation of the Marines that I was with and the other the army guys earlier on um, in Fallujah. So there's there's a great generation. Each generation is a great generation, and I hope that people kind of look within their own families and, um, and and gather those stories before they're lost. Great. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned your your history happy hour. Um, I wasn't sure if that was something you wanted to to plug, but uh, I would thoroughly or highly encourage as many people to go to it as can. We want you back too. It's, is there a limit? Really enjoyed uh, your on how many people you can host on there? We can get up to 500. Okay. And we've, you've gotten over a hundred. So we're, we're, you know, it's, it's growing every week and um, it's something you can download too. We're, 
we're, we're it's on Facebook. It's on my um, my Twitter account at Combat Historian, where you can get details and uh, on, on, on participating. It's a little different than just a a standard show where you just listen or or um, or watch it. You can participate, which I think differentiates. And it's also it's a situation where I'm a fellow at at Mount Vernon. Uh, you know, uh, on like on-site resident scholar, and the the virus has sort of disrupted the, the one of the things that I love to do, which is to go on the back porch with fellow historians and talk history and have a drink too. And all that's kind of been disrupted. But what we have at the History Hour Happy Hour is three historians. I'm the co-host, where we have thirty books between us or among us, I should say. And we interview people and bring, you know, kind of history to the, to the viewers, which allow us to interact with them on Zoom. It's, it's a lot of fun. So, I mean, I, I hope, and I'll, when, I, when I put this out, um, you know, my little advertisement, I'll be sure to uh, throw in a plug for the, the history. Well, we're looking forward to you participating again, too. So. <laughs> so, like, I'll, I'll be more rested next time because I'm, I'm All right. For, um, but yeah, so uh, go ahead and you can go to Pat's website if you want to check out any of his books. I mean, you can get them on Amazon or Kindle or whatever else. But if you want to go straight to his website, it's PatrickKO'Donnell.com. I'll have all the spellings in the show notes. You can follow him on Twitter at Combat Historian. I'll have that in the notes as well if you just want to hit the hyperlink. Uh, Pat, I, I really appreciate you coming on. All, all right. right. Thank you, brother. This is a solemn but glorious hour. I wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to see this day. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. For this victory, we join in offering our thanks to the providence which has guided and sustained us through the dark days of adversity and into light. Much remains to be done. The victory won in the West must now be won in the East. The whole world must be cleansed of the evil from which half the world has been freed. United, the peace-loving nations have demonstrated in the West that their arms are stronger by far than the might of dictators or the tyranny of military cliques that once called us soft and weak. The power of our peoples to defend themselves against all enemies will be proved in the Pacific War as it was proved in Europe. 